Welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Cassie Kathy Gellis, a lawyer, scholar, and legal commentator. We will discuss her work on internet policy, Section 230, and copyright law, among other things. So welcome to the show, Kathy. Thanks for having me. Yeah, pleasure's all mine. Uh, as you know, I follow your work on uh, Twitter and on various other platforms you write for. Uh, I've always been a big fan, so I'm delighted to have you on on the show. For listeners who aren't already fans like me, but should be, uh, I wonder if you could start by uh, telling people a little bit about sort of who you are, uh, how you got to the place where you are now, and the different kinds of work that you're currently doing. Well, it all goes back to middle school. And I, yeah, how, how far back do we want to go? But um, in all seriousness, I got really interested, you know, as I become an adolescent and aware of the world of journalism and its role of the free press and uh, making democracy work. And I expected when I went off to college that I would become a journalist. And while I was there, I discovered information technology. And that just captivated me even more because. This was even a little bit before the internet was quite mainstream, but just the potential of these technologies to sort of preserve the democratic ideal of people are talking to each other and it's a way of connecting them. And I got very excited. I graduated accidentally having um, skills to do a profession. I was a qualified webmaster. I worked in Silicon Valley in Europe for uh, about seven years. And then I became very dismayed that people who didn't understand the law or they didn't understand technology or how people used it, and they were nonetheless making the law about it. And I decided I know both because I was also a sociology major and I did research on internet user adoption patterns. I decided if they're going to make the law, they have to ask me. So I went to law school to put myself in a position where they would have to ask me. And now my career is largely built around me telling them how not to do this badly so that free speech and civil liberties, when they hit the internet, doesn't end up catastrophic for the free speech and civil liberties, that this is a really cool technology, lots of excitement, lots of good things that can come from it. And so my job as a lawyer and commentator is to make sure that we can get the best out of it and not accidentally regulate ourselves into trouble. So you work in a lot of different areas and are engaged in a lot of different media and forums. I wonder if you could talk just briefly about the different kinds of things you do specifically, like when you engage in these kinds of uh, internet uh, and free speech policy related issues, where are you doing it? How are you doing it? And how do you kind of see your strategy of engagement? Well, it's evolved a little bit because some of the problem is you go to law school, you get out of law school, and then it's a big question of now what? Um, So I knew I was drawn to issues of law involving technology. And, um, but I also had some predilections about which way I, you know, who I wanted to help. Um, I didn't want to, you know, if I'm involved with copyright law, I didn't want to sue the file sharers. I didn't want to take that side in the battle. I want to take the other side. Part of the problem with being a practitioner is that sometimes the worthy positions are not the positions that can actually pay their lawyers. So it's sometimes difficult to find the work or if not to find the work, but to find the ability to do the work for money so you can live, um, that's tricky. 
So I've sort of like hobbled my career together because I also needed you get out of law school and you also have to learn how to be a lawyer. So um, I was doing certain things to pay the bills and then also looking for projects where I could make a difference and learn the skills that I needed to learn to make the difference. So early on, I did some work. Um, uh, I co-counseled with Public Citizen defending the free speech rights of a previously anonymous blogger, but who was um, at the receiving end of a trademark lawsuit over a satirical website. We helped him. Um, I quashed a number of subpoenas seeking to unmask an anonymous uh, blogger who was criticizing somebody with power and who wanted to find out who the critic was so they could make the life miserable for this critic. Um, I think I did a few other things that are currently slipping my mind, but then I went into the amicus brief game because that was a way to sort of help shape policy. So I did some work. Um, my first amicus brief was Google versus Garcia, where unfortunately then Judge Kaczynski and I understand why, but he nearly broke copyright law and intermediary law and a number of things. And while I understand what he was trying to vindicate with this decision, it was not a good decision. It broke a lot of stuff doctrinally and practically. And um, I knew I had wanted to write an amicus brief at some point in the near future. And he ended up putting out a notice that basically said, anybody who wants to can write 2,500 words. You don't need permission. Just go ahead and file it. And I just took that as an you know, he means me. This was my marching orders. This is my moment. And that was the first amicus brief that I ended up writing. And I wrote a sort of a pure Section 230 brief in that context. And that won the rehearing. And then we did another brief to kind of, anyway, Google versus Garcia is not broken law anymore. So um, that all got fixed. But that was the first and the first call to action. And an interesting punchline is I eventually found myself on a, on a panel presentation with him, which I got on because I had written this brief. And um and he told me, and I remember, and this is off topic a little bit, but he looked at it, he looked at the brief, he said, well, you may have been wrong, but at least you were clear. And I just took that as one of the greatest compliments I could be paid. And so here we are. Um, but essentially, what I really like to do is fix it for everyone advocacy. Because one of the things is when you're a practitioner and you do litigation, litigation is a way to sort of stop the bad and try to protect, you know, the worthy causes, but you do it a case at a time, a client's interest at a time. And I would rather put make sure that the legal systems in place can protect everybody so that how do I do this so it's not just about the parties and the litigation, but something that will scale so that everybody can feel secure that their free speech rights will be protected or something like that. So that pulls me back into the policy space, but I still continue to have one foot in the practitioner space, which is useful because sometimes you have to speak as a practitioner to the policymakers to say, I see what you're trying to do, but it's going to have this effect that you don't realize. And sometimes it helps to be close to the trenches so you can report back, not theoretically, but practically what will actually happen if they pursue this policy. So I know that you do this in a lot of different ways, but maybe you could kind of signpost for some listeners a few of the areas in which you engage directly with policymakers, but then also engage with kind of internet policy more broadly uh, by speaking directly to, to the public. So I think what you're getting at is one of the core areas that's ended up a core facet of expertise, which is Section 230. Um, I'm also thinking about, I also do copyright, and I remember at this panel my opening line at this panel is I do copyright kicking and screaming because it's not that I want to do copyright. It's that I want to protect free expression and what is copyright, but regulating expression. So therefore I have to be in this space. 
So I have to be in the 230 space because Section 230 is so critical to the practical enablement of getting speech online. Um, because what I basically tell people is if you think about Internet speech, it's a type of communication that needs helpers in order to happen. Like right now I'm sitting here and I have to get my ideas to you. So this is involving my ISP, the platform that's recording this, the platform that's distributing this. We need a lot of helpers to get my thought from my head to your ears. And you have to make it safe for the helpers to be able to be in the business of helping. So you get into this theory of something that doesn't really exist online quite so much, but it's intermediary liability protection. and Forms of what forms of statutory protection can we give them so that it is safe to be the helpers? And the prototypical, it helps immensely and occupies most areas where there could be trouble and it isn't safe for the helpers is Section 230, which has been on the books for like 25 years, and it's designed to make it that it can be safe for helpers. What helpers need to do is make two types of decisions, allowing what to go on their services and being in the position to allow as much as possible to go on to their services, but also they sometimes make decisions about what not to have on their services. And Congress has always expressed, and I think the public generally expresses an interest in minimizing garbage uses. The internet is nicer if it doesn't have a little garbage. So a little bit of, you know, cultivation and gardening and, you know, plugging out the weeds is a good thing to have, but you need to make it safe for the platforms to do that too. So Section 230 is a two-pronged immunity statute that basically says, you know what, platforms, we want you to do the best job you can to leave the most good stuff up and take down the most bad stuff. And we're going to make it safe for you to be partners with us to the, do the best you can on both fronts. Because if you do the best you can, you can't get in trouble for it. So it's a very carrot-based way of getting what you want from the helpers as opposed to a stick-based way where you've sort of scared them and scarred them into doing things. But if you scare them and scar them into doing things, they may not spend their resources effectively. Um, the whole picture of the most good and the least bad starts to get compromised. They might be over-focused on certain bad things just to get away from the liability, but not the rest of the bad things that otherwise they could spend their resources on. Um, it's sort of counterintuitive because when we think about law, we think about very punitive things of law says thou shalt not. And Section 230 operates in a different thing of, you know, be our friend, come on board, do the best you can. And as a policy matter, it's a good way of getting what you want. Um, but those are the basics of why we would have such a statute, how it works, and why I defend it, because the reality is we can't get perfect. We can have the most good stuff and the least bad stuff possible, but we'll never get the most good and the least bad as an absolute thing, partly because we won't agree um, and partly because that's just not possible, no matter what kind of technology we throw at it. Um, but the bits of bad that sneak through make people very upset, sometimes legitimately. And this is causing people to say, fix it. I don't want the bad stuff anymore. And they're sort of looking around and saying, well, look, if Section 230 is the law that gets us the internet and the internet is giving me bad things, then I think we have a problem with Section 230. And so they're gunning for it. And I think that's a big problem because we are still closer to the ideal with Section 230 and we will not like it if we lose it. Um, and it's hard to explain that, but that's my job. Well, so it seems like Section 230 is everywhere. 
in public conversation right now. But it also seems like there's an awful lot of misconception about what it is, what it does, and what it's kind of fair to blame it for, if anything. Um, I wonder if you could kind of, in a nutshell, kind of pin down for listeners exactly what it is that Section 230 was intended to do, or maybe actually does, and sort of why it matters, why people are misunderstanding what the law is and what it's for. So the big crux of Section 230 tends to fall more on the allowing what sort of content can you allow to come online and use your systems. In recent days, there's been more discussion about, well, what have you taken down and what's the consequences? But let's set that off to the side, because like for the first two decades, we were mostly fighting over the, what were you letting up? And the problem with letting up is, how can you allow user content to use your systems if you could end up in trouble for what your users use them for? That's very chilling. If that could be true, then pe- then the helpers would basically say, I can't be in the business to help you at all, which would be bad. Then we wouldn't have these services. Or they're going to be extremely selective and turn down an awful lot of user expression, including user expression that's perfectly lawful. The First Amendment is very expansive in the United States. It takes you can fall afoul of it. There's you know, room on the edges where you can find unconstitutional speech, but it's really at the margins. An awful lot of speech is protected in the United States, and it wouldn't be able to get online if there was no service to facilitate it. So the crux of Section 230 at subsection C1 is, and this is the 26 words that created the internet, as some have called it, it basically says, whoever created the speech in question is responsible for it, but not the helper that intermediated it to get from one person to the other. And that's the crux of it. Um, It's sort of a, you're not your brother's keeper type thing. It's, you know, we're not saying that nobody's responsible for it, but the helper isn't because if the helper could be on the hook, then the helper couldn't be the helper. Because what tends to happen when bad things get through is everyone's like, well, how could you not stop that terrible bit of speech? well, do you know how many users we have and how much speech is coming across our system at any given time? Plus, sometimes it depends on context and we'll never have the context to know if this was defamatory or or something like that. So um, that's not a, you know, when you're stuck in the moment of a terrible situation, it's hard to see, but how could you let this happen? But the ecosystem is such that the helpers are overwhelmed and they can't possibly police content perfectly for all the things that could possibly be wrong for the content. So the principle of Section 230 at this core is they can't do it. So we're not going to create liability when they can't do the impossible. We're going to acknowledge that they can't do it and give them the protection so that they'll at least feel safe to you know, try to do what they can anyway. You've talked about both Section 230 and the First Amendment. When you talk about this kind of speech that's, you know, potentially creating liability for internet helpers, as it were, is it Section 230 that's protecting them? Is it the First Amendment that's protecting them? Or is it some combination of the two working together? In other words, sort of where are they looking to for protection from potential liability? And, and, And how do these different protections kind of interact with each other? So it confuses people because by and large, what's really happening is that these these decisions that the helpers are making are largely protected by the First Amendment. 
Um, around the edges, there's a little bit that Section 230 might do that the First Amendment wouldn't quite do on its own, but even that's a little bit debatable. By and large, what is what the platforms are doing, they would have the First Amendment defense for. The problem is that's great in theory, but if you have to go to court to defend yourself, even if you're going to be vindicated that, oh yeah, it turns out you were entirely you know, within your rights to let this content up or take this content down, you've already spent thousands and thousands of dollars on your lawyers. And how are you going to do that for one case, let alone at the potential volume of if every user's content could potentially make, raise infinite legal issues for you, that's indefensible. That's game ending, company obliterating, platform bankrupting. Um, so the whole, so what Section 230 does, and I've argued, is it's really more of a tool of, people say it's a subsidy for big tech, whatever. No, no, it's not. There's no language in it that says it's specific to what we are now calling big tech anyway. And it's, um, it's not a subsidy. It doesn't give any special treatment. It really functions as a rule of civil procedure where it stops lawsuits from landing on you because it's just the threat of the lawsuit that is so chilling and then can force platforms to not do the best job they can letting up the most good content and taking down the most bad content. So it's really, it's designed to sort of just make that litigation not be a threat. Um, so you're getting the same point you would have had with the First Amendment, but now it's making those rights meaningful because they're not a theoretical defense. Now you have some practical way of implementing that defense to actually solve your problem. So a lot of people have been talking lately about amending or reforming Section 230. I mean, to the best of the, your ability to sort of identify different strands in that conversation, what are they reacting to? What are they proposing? And, and why do you see those proposals as being misguided or a problem? So at the core, and I love how for both of us, we are air quoting and we completely understand that people can obviously hear our air quoting. So I'm, I'm sure that's absolutely the case. Um, the issue with a lot of the moderation, with a lot of the uh, quote unquote, there's my air quotes, uh, reform proposals is, well, some people actually want to just get rid of it altogether, but I think they are generally more marginalized in the political discourse uh, because people do seem to have some tacit understanding that Section 230 is important for having anything good on the internet. So, okay, I guess we shouldn't mess with it too much. But in the wake of bad things happening, they're looking at the bad things happening, saying, well, we had 230 and the bad things happened. So let's narrow Section 230 so that the bad things can't get through anymore. But the crux of the matter is, like we were talking about, it's very nice if you have a defensible position, but you really need to not have to litigate your defensible position. Terrific. But if now instead you're having to litigate whether you have to litigate your defensible position, you're litigating. So it doesn't really matter what you're litigating about, you have the same problem. So most of these changes, possibly all of them, but let's let's just say most, basically end up making your Section 230 protection so contingent on a number of factors that that's what you're going to be having your lawsuits about. That's what you're going to be litigating, in which case, if you're litigating, why have any statute protecting you from litigation at all? Because you're litigating. It's not working. And so every time they try to make a conditional or something with a test, or if you're this, you're, you don't get it. If you're that, you do. It, it makes it useless because now you're litigating and it no longer can do its job protecting you from that litigation. 
Well, so, I mean, in response to these kinds of proposals to make changes, I mean, what do you think that litigators or sorry, legislators and, and maybe courts ought, ought to do, if, if anything? I mean, is there room for change or do you think any kind of change really would be uh, a mistake? And sort of how should they respond to these kinds of concerns that people have? Two answers to that. Uh, The first is a practical one. Okay, you know, people say, well, how can you just say do nothing? So, okay, I made a list of things you could do. There's a typo. You could get rid of the typo. But okay, that sounds flippant, although why not get rid of the typo? The second thing is, what I was saying is that Section 230 is not useful when it's contingent. So one of the things is that Section 230 from its outset has already always had two carve-outs, where if the thing wrong with content is that it was X and hit certain forms of liability, Section 230 wouldn't protect. One of those carve-outs is for federal criminal law. Um, That is basically fine, in part because a lot of what we generally generally come across uh, in terms of criminal law is state-based law. And Section 230 has a preemption provision to say that um, states don't get to mess with the general principle that platforms are not responsible for what their users say. Uh, So that is fine because it focuses on a couple of areas of things that are truly wrong under federal criminal law, like um, some awful sex crimes related things. Um, And that sort of says, okay, platforms, you've got one thing to worry about. And the thing that you're worrying about is like the worst stuff we can imagine. So they can make that the priority and focus on it and actually do a better job policing on that front because they don't have to worry about policing on any other front. The second thing that was carved out is if the thing wrong with the content is it a Bends an intellectual property right. And this provision isn't written very precisely, but for ease of this conversation, copyright is one of the things that it wouldn't reach. Then Section 230 offers no protection. Now, in the copyright department, you end up in DMCA land, where instead you have a different form of statutory protection that comes from Section 512 of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. And that gives platforms some protection But it's much more conditional. You have a whole bunch of things you need to do in order to comply, much more conditional, much more contingent. And so, again, that problem of you can be bankrupted just litigating whether the protection applies to you, that has happened. That has happened to platforms who are ultimately vindicated. Um, We're thinking Veo Networks got obliterated by a DMCA claim. They went out of business even though they won the case and would have been protected. And now today we're sitting here like, oh, it would be nice if we had more competitors to YouTube. Well, you let litigation obliterate a competitor years and years ago, and now it's not around to actually provide its services on a competitive basis in this market. So we've always had these two things. And so if I were going to fix things, I would also close up the the intellectual property carve out because it causes problems and it causes real harm to speech. Not just that it obliterated service providers, but it also obliterates speech. And we know when we go on YouTube and see this content not available due to a complaint or something like that, that may have been perfectly fine content, but we'll never know because it's gone. So the richness of our discourse is affected and potentially lawful speech no longer gets to exist online because of this liability problem. So I would say, don't add more carve outs. Let's get rid of the carve outs we have. And that gets to the third change, which is uh, 
couple years ago, they decided that the federal criminal law carve out wasn't doing enough. I think this was very specious arguing. Um, there was no real factual reason to believe it wasn't pulling its weight, but they decided we need to have more stuff that's specific to sex trafficking. And so they appended a new provision called FOSTA that got put onto Section 230. And it's a very, very, very complex statute that is very difficult to parse, that calls back and forth to other areas of the U.S. code. It's a mess. It's very difficult to advise platforms on what it actually doesn't allow or does allow. And the consequence is a lot of platforms have basically gotten out of the business of intermediating an awful lot of content, including lawful content. And that's a problem. So the third thing I would do is this was a mistake. Undo, undo, undo. There is a constitutional challenge that's pending, which would force the courts to undo it. But if we're, you know, opening up the code book and mucking around with it, let's just take it off. It didn't do what it was supposed to do. And it actually caused harm in the way that it was designed to not have harm happen. So not a good thing. So I would undo these things. Um, But I think the global answer to the question is it's hard when a bad thing is happening to do nothing. But that's kind of the correct response, because what you really want to foster is a good ecosystem, an ecosystem where if some service is not doing a good job, we'll get a better one because a new one can come up. And if some speakers are speaking stupid, horrible things, we'll we'll have the space for better speakers to come along. It's difficult to counsel that restraint. Policymakers are under a lot of pressure from people who are offended by some truly legitimate things that are happening. The internet is, you know, not everybody is nice. Not everybody has nice things to say. And the internet lets them say they're not nice things with consequence. And that's bad. And it can be easy to want a response. But sometimes the response, it's like in quicksand. Pulling harder isn't going to get you out of the quicksand. Sometimes you have to relax and create the space for the adjustments to actually take place. Although I won't say just be passively. Some of the problems that we're seeing are actually other areas of policy failures. And part of the problem we have now is that Section 230 is a really good, really effective law, but it's the only one we've got. So we might want to look at complementary regulation in other areas to deal with these externalities. Um, But don't just put it all on Section 230 because there's a limit to how much weight it could carry unto itself. And there's no change that isn't going to essentially Jenga it and make it all fall apart. It seems like on your telling, Section 230 not only protects internet platforms from potential liability for First Amendment speech, but also kind of puts them in a position to facilitate the First Amendment protected speech of their users. And yet it seems like a lot of the conversation around Section 230 and the internet and, you know, regulation of the internet more generally is people expressing frustration that they feel like their ability to speak speak is being limited. What, what are they missing? And why isn't that a Section 230 problem? So I want to tell a joke I learned 20 some odd years ago. Uh, before we had what we, the internet looks like it does now. And the joke was So people then were largely using dial-up services like America Online to do their internet access. Uh, Originally, these were sort of private communities. Um, AOL got very big and very popular because it was essentially a walled garden. Um, 
but it provided, here's some content for you, here's some chat rooms for you, here's an email for you so you can message people, and it was self-contained. Eventually, there was sort of consumer demand, so they connected to the internet, and people could get out and surf the whole web, and eventually, AOL more became an ISP, and people just used it to get onto the whole web. But before that happened, and people had really broken down those those walls, they were using AOL, and the joke was... Um, People who think America Online is the internet are the same people who think Taco Bell is fine Mexican cuisine. And it was that sense of this very contained world is your world and you're not understanding that the world is bigger than that. I want to bring that joke into the present and say we are way too fixated on some of our larger social media platforms. They are not the internet. They are a blip in history. They are a big blip. They are a blip that has significant effect right now. Um, and you know, we need to pay attention to how and why, but they will fade into the rearview mirror of history if we let them. But if we focus too much on treating them as the internet and the be all and the end all, and there's nothing we can understand about what the internet can deliver us other than what these platforms are doing, we're not going to be able to respond in a, with regulation that's going to be appropriate so that we create this healthy ecosystem where this can fade into history and we'll have something better that replaces it. The problem right now is, with respect to that question, is these questions are being raised in the context of these particular, essentially walled gardens. You can leave Facebook and go to the wider internet, but people aren't, and you're treating it as, but if I wasn't on Facebook, it didn't happen on the internet. But as long as you can essentially still be on the internet and still talk to people, um, it kind of doesn't matter what Facebook is doing. So... I'm avoiding some of your question, mostly because it's a long and complicated thing, but I think some of it is not that people are upset, but they're not looking at the right question. These questions are not about these particular platforms. When we deal with it from a regulatory basis, we have to think about what is that ecosystem where we could get us some alternatives. So Kathy, in in closing, I know that you're actively engaged in this policymaking conversation, but I wonder if for listeners who might not be kind of following it as as closely as as you and I are like in a nutshell like what are you trying to convey to legislators who are and policymakers who are wrestling with or thinking about what to do about these questions and and how would you kind of frame that kind of in a nutshell for listeners who are trying to understand what kind of contribution you want to make specifically to that regulatory conversation So one thing I want to add to my last answer is that platforms themselves are making decisions. And part of what we're reacting to is the consequences of their own decisions. One form of advice is to not be afraid of them doing that, because if you have the ecosystem that's healthy enough, some may be making bad decisions, but you could get new platforms, new helpers, new services who can make better decisions and help foster other communities, and then we can network in between these communities. So that openness is important. So that is one of the things that I would counsel, not to be too afraid of the specifics, but to make sure that we have this place where we can get better and including other choices, other expressive choices that the operators of these services might make. And then to sort of recognize that sometimes it's counterintuitive that um, to do more, you might need to do less because of the way things influence everybody else. 
it sounds like a small move to just add another carve out for certain types of liability to Section 230, but the consequences to it end up staggering, potentially. Arguably, FOSTA was very badly drafted, which adds to the problem, but it it affected even the people they were trying to ostensibly help with it in a harmful way because it took away their ability to speak. And when you take away the ability to speak because you've made it unsafe for the platforms to help, what happened to that speech? What happened to the people who needed to make that speech? Bad things is what happened to it. So they need to understand that small changes can have big effects because what you're really trying to essentially, and I use the the Jenga metaphor, but I think that's really important. Jenga is a whole bunch of interlocking pieces that need to work together. And if you pull some of them out, it tips over the balance and lots of stuff falls down. That's a difficult thing to teach regulators, but that's what my nutshell would be, that these are some of the blocks that you think are minor are really pulling a lot of weight. And you have to look for the right places to put your forces for as you want to build up, you know, the next things to come. Awesome. Well, Kathy, thanks so much for coming on the show and and talking about all of these uh, regulatory issues and and internet policy that you've been working uh, so long and hard on. I I really appreciate it. And I, I learned a lot talking to you. Thanks for having me.
So have your fun, cause now I'm done. That's the news I've got for you. I got news for you. We're through. <laughs>